This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane, and what a great Sunday it is. Nice and sunny and... Hang on, no, that was last week. Dr. Crystal, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Did you ride in? I did not cycle no, I... in today. <laughs> a bit rough on the on the roads there, I think. I uh, no, I chose uh, I chose <coughs> to uh, use other forms of transport in this weather. Yes, indeed, Chris KP. God, it's good to be back on community radio. It is, and we're still on community Correct. radio, and it great, gives me great pleasure. There's two buttons here. People wouldn't be aware out there in listener land, but there are two buttons. One says analog, and one says digital, and I push them both. I think that's important. <laughs> All assume, right. Well, no one told me to. I just assume I'm supposed to. So, um, <laughs> But, look, it is very important that community radio is supported and to all those people who uh, signed the petition yesterday and were part of that day of action, I think it, uh, it really showed just how much support there is mm. for community radio around the country and hopefully that will continue for a long time into the future and we'll beat the crap out of people if they don't. <laughs> um, oh, you don't mean that metaphorically, <laughs> verbally. <laughs> verbally beat the crap out of them. Anyway, let's get into some science news. We do have a big show today because it's Medical Research Week and the Australian Society for Medical Research have been hammering my emails for the last month to get some great guests on, which we will introduce to you a little bit later in the program. But for the moment, we're going to start off with some news. Dr. Crystal, over to you. Well, you may have seen reported in the in the press this week around a new cancer vaccine, mm. which has got everyone very excited. And um, and and I think it's, it's a new tool in this growing approach to prime and train and sort of boost your own immune system system to fight cancer. It's the 21st way, century way of, uh, of approaching cancer treatment. No longer are we going to just try and go and directly kill cancer cells uh, with, with drugs. We're going to use um, interventions that boost the immune system to itself uh, target and kill cancer in, it, in its way. And so um, this research uh, was published this week in the journal Nature from a team of researchers at Johann Gutenberg University in Mainz, Germany, who collaborated with one of uh, Germany's largest biotech companies, BioNTech to be able to produce this new uh, vaccine. And, and the, it's, it's, a, it's a vaccine that's given as a therapy. So it's not a vaccine that, that you or I would take as a healthy person to prevent us getting mm-hmm. a cancer, but it's a vaccine that's given to people to treat cancer. But it's, it's a vaccine because what it does is it induces an immune response um, in the same way that, that a vaccine normally would. And, and this is where it gets really interesting because um, the way in which this vaccine targets and trains the immune system is by sending a little piece of the cancer as genetic material to some of the key cells in the immune system called dendritic cells. And so dendritic cells are a little bit like, I don't know, they're a bit like the principal of the immune system. They, their role is to train and educate other cells. And so the immune, and they're kind of like a bit of a director in that sense. They sort of say, um, they sort of, sh- they, they, they work with T cells um, and they show the T cells a piece of, of something and they say, see this? When you find this, go and kill it. And then they also produce um, these uh, proteins called cytokines that also help the immune system be sort of more alert. So dendritic cells are a real master regulator of the immune system. And so this new cancer vaccine... Um, basically takes a little bit of RNA, RNA being um, a, a molecule related to DNA, which is a, a genetic message. It takes a bit of RNA from a cancer cell, wraps it up in a bit of lipids, so a bit of fat kind of, uh, and creates this little nanoparticle, which is injected that, that targets and is sent directly to a dendritic cell and turns on the immune response, which is very similar to the immune response that's turned on when you would have a virus. Um, mm. And so, and so the, this vaccine uh, then gets the 
ginger, gets to the dendritic cells, the dendritic cells um, see that piece of um, genetic information from the cancer cell and go, oh, right, okay, CT cells, if you see something like this, make kill sure it. you go and kill it. Mm. And so that's how this new vaccine <coughs> works. And the study has worked um, very well in mice, and so there's excellent results showing that this vaccine stimulates the right kinds of immune system uh, responses in mice. It works in two ways, both, both telling the T cells what to do and producing a cytokine called interferon alpha, which um, kind of uh, helps drive that immune response. Um, and so they are, now they've shown in, in a few patients, they've shown in three patients that this is a, a safe um, and appropriate way of stimulating the immune system. Mm. The thing that's really fascinating that's picked up a lot of the media attention is this idea that it could be a universal vaccine. And what it's basically said is... Um, <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing politely. Why are you laughing politely, Chris? Because it's a really, really loaded term. It just sounds like you've got yeah. a, a silver bullet for everyone, which is not true. Not true, but what it does, it has created a technology platform because what it's really said is that we've shown that, that using RNA in this way, in, in this delivery sense to these types of cells in the immune system works. So now what we could do is go forward and personalise this approach for anyone's individual cancer. So if you, so in the future state, you might mm. imagine a patient goes in, gets their um, cancer genome sequenced, and from that they find the bits of RNA that'll be the most effective at targeting that cancer, and then they put those into a personalised vaccine they make just for you and inject it in. And so so you can kind of see that this, this new technology, they've validated the approach and mm. that they've predicted how it could be now used to customise an individual um, uh, cancer vaccines into the future. Look, it, I mean, it is super exciting, but it's interesting. I, I gave a, a plenary uh, talk during the week, and it was around the same time this came out. And in fact, my plenary talk was right before the announcement. And it was funny because I, in that talk, I actually said, you know, if I had a dollar <laughs> for every time I heard in the media that we were close to curing cancer over the last 30 years, I would be a bloody rich man because we, you know, the, the way the, the media hype is based on two things. One is the type of information the media is accepting of and transmits, and two is my desperate need to get lots, shitloads actually, of research funding. And that's what drives the type of communication of these things. I think when you, you start drilling down and you ask the same questions six months from now, often the, the gloss is gone. So I, I really hope that this is one where that gloss doesn't disappear because the, I think the immune system is, is something that it does this job anyway for us throughout our lives. And if we can hyper-stimulate it to do it at a time when it gets behind. In a targeted and controlled yeah. way. You've yes. got to be very great. careful. <laughs> you know, but, but great, yes. you know. And, and as, as Chris KP was saying, you know, there's, there's a lot of people for whom this, who are immune compromised, et cetera, et cetera, who this will not be a, a valid scenario for. So it's, it's not a, a catch-all. It's one of for some I, people. Yeah, one of the things that I think that was missed in, in some of the popular reporting of this was that there's a really... There's quite a nice narrative of, of, of science that underpins this. There's mm. things that have been tried and been successful and yeah. stuff that's been difficult and blah. Where, and what where's that? Well, yeah, and yeah. I think and I think that actually tells a better story, a more Absolutely. interesting story than we're going to fix everything. But it's it's a but that's a hard story to tell. It takes well, work, and people tend not to do that because it's not the hype story that gets into the media quickly. And yet, and yet I could, I, I reckon, <clears> if, if it was my job, I reckon I could probably give you a big, sexy, blam story about that because basically what this this paper and research has done is is 
more or less solve one of the sim- one, a quite simple but difficult to to, mm. to bridge hurdle that's been getting in the way of this, and they, they've time. essentially yeah. probably fixed it. Yeah. So it is an important thing to do. It's, it is worth <laughs> worthy of, of note and of excitement. I mean, it is the first demonstration of being able to give an RNA-based yeah. vaccine to a dendritic cell, and that has been a challenge. <laughs> yeah. but, that's but, but that headline doesn't sell as well as <laughs> universal <laughs> cancer vaccine discovered. <laughs> Unless they said Donald Trump, you know, lords. But, you know, I think we, we need to be careful here because this is where I get, I get quite, you know, on my soapbox, and, and I think to stem cells. And we've had these sorts of headlines around stem cells for quite, quite a while. One of the consequences of that at best causes no harm, at worst kills. And that's people going to international locations where supposed stem cell therapies that meet those exact headlines are available. And, of course, we all know that they are nonsense, they are garbage and they don't work. So when we report in the media this type of thing in this way, there is a responsibility to get it right. Because I can just imagine, as the good work continues in this area by, by these very people, there will be a marketing team somewhere not far from this country going, we can sell this shit inside of six months. And people will come and pay large amounts of money for it on the off chance it may save their life. That's what's happening with stem cell therapies. It would happen with this too if we're not careful. And I think putting in the work and doing the biggest story, the hardest story, as as you suggest, Chris KP, is what needs to happen. So... Anyway, thank God we, for us. we better move on, you know. But it is look—it's an amazing piece of work. Yeah. But but let's promote the work, not the hype. That's 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 <laughs> Science, my point. Science, not hype. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Chris KP, what do you um, got? Meerkats? Want, yeah, fat ones, fat meerkats in particular. Um, so to give you a, I mean, people people know meerkats and they think they're great and they're cute and that's all true. Um, what's interesting about them is that they have a—it's a very um, what sort of after they're a very. Uh, they have a colony, and it's a very interactive colony. There's all kinds They're of very rules. Social, aren't very they? social animals, yeah. yes. Uh, and, and the way it works, generally speaking, is that there is a dominant pair, though, that does most of the breeding. And uh, you know, at a, at a reasonable age of, of maturity, the males leave and they go and they try and disrupt somebody else's colony and become part of the breeding pair. Ideally, the females stay though, and they have a very strict hierarchy of who's in that uh, you know of the order of, uh, of importance and who's getting close to the top of the tree. And when the oldest female becomes unable to breed or dies, then the next one in line push, pushes up. Um, and one of the things that is notable about the next one in line is that they tend to be bigger. They tend to be a larger, heavier meerkat. And so the question is, well, so you know, what's the process that goes on here? Do they, do they have to be heavier to be able to breed successfully? Is it just because the bigger ones get more of everything? How does that work? So what these uh, bunch of scientists have done is they've actually artificially increased the weight of some of some uh, some members of the uh, of the colony, and they did that because the the particular colony was very 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 they were very happy with humans. They had a lot of human contact, so they're a wild group, but they were able to access them. And they essentially found pairs, sibling pairs, and fed the younger one boiled eggs a few times a day, a few extra boiled eggs. So they got tubby. What they found then is, firstly, that the the older female would then eat more in order to catch up with her younger, oh. heavier sister. <laughs> with Peer no pressure. Other, yeah, basically, <laughs> anything you can eat, I can eat more. <laughs> but they also identify the fact that when you became um, the, the dominant female, you actually had a secondary growth as well. So you actually stacked it on more <clears> to make sure that everyone knew... Yeah. I'm, You're in I'm, charge. I'm, I'm, I'm the big person. I'm the big, big mama. Yeah, so, yeah. I didn't want to say that. <laughs> big mama, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so essentially, um, weight gain it has a competitive basis in meerkat colonies. Nice. 
Let's see how it translates to humans. Probably not at all. And, and do, we, do we know anything about the impact on meerkat diabetic or obesity <laughs> yeah. or I, uh, cardiovascular conditions? Well, I think as long as, they can, breed, sure. as, long as they can breed for long enough to be able to produce the next generations, I don't think it yeah. matters anymore. Well, the, you do pass some of that stuff on, though, from... Uh, you Gen- know, uh, yes, genetic, the grandparents yeah, pass out. it down. Ooh, look out. Uh, you don't want a fat grandparent meerkat. Um, that, anyway. I really don't. You're right. No. Now, uh, look, I have to say, I'm very disappointed about something um, which everyone else may get to go to that I won't, but I'm, I'm not going to be available. But this Saturday, um, you, you guys remember the New Horizons um, mission to Pluto? Oh, yeah. yeah, of course you do. Goes past do you remember how excited I was about Yeah, I was yeah. So excited. We're all excited. Um, anyway, this, this weekend at the um, Marinda Access Gallery in Ringwood, um, one of our listeners contacted me, Leonie Connellan, has an exhibition called Between Two Worlds, which has been inspired by um, that mission. And so she's learned all this stuff about, you know, over the last year about what the mission was about. What sort of exhibition is it? An art exhibition. As in. A paint start drawn uh, drawing all sorts of things. Yeah, okay, it's, cool. a, it's a yeah. variety. So anyway, it sounds really interesting. So it's on the um, Marunda Access Gallery in Ringwood. It's on Saturday. Uh, starts at uh, the opening is at two p.m. and then it runs for two months. So I'm going to try and check it out after that. But I think it will be. Uh, pretty cool cool stuff yeah. now uh, just quickly uh chris kp and i were talking about this earlier before you got here dr crystal um pandas apparently now um due to the great work of megan owen at the san diego zoo have found they've found out that they're um they can hear right up into the higher frequencies that you know like dogs oh wow pretty interesting and compared to polar bears they're the only other bear for which they've checked this sort mm. of stuff um yeah they're way ahead of the game no one knows why well, do- um, dogs and bears are evolutionally related, I think, aren't they? You could be making that up. Are, but pandas, are pandas really bears? Well, I don't know. It's like koala bears. They don't wear clothes. They're not bears. Yeah, I'm koala kind of, bears I'm, aren't I'm, bears. <laughs> I'm not an area... It's not my area of expertise. <laughs> Armadillos but... aren't bears either. What is <laughs> your point? <laughs> but anyway, it, it is interesting because uh, the bit I loved about this, though, is it took between three and six months to train the pandas such that they could do the test. So because they have Again, to, the when work they, is yeah, the interesting bit. Yeah. When they yeah. when they hear a sound they have to go and push a button. And if they don't hear a sound, they don't push a button. And so the pandas for quite a while, I think, were just going, bugger you. It's enough work having to have these people look at us all day. We're not pushing that button when we hear this squeak. Anyway, eventually they got, they got it done and they, um, they recorded that they could hear right up into the ultrasonic, which is something that they, you know, it's not part of their vocalisation spectrum. So they don't make sounds at that particular so, frequency. Yeah, so what's the so advantage of having it? Is this some evolutionary sort of bit left over that they once needed yeah. that was valuable is it connected to some other it, feature or is it just weird yeah, yeah so they don't know yet but it's um it's interesting stuff we have in the studio right now dr sarah meacham she's the president of the australian society for medical research she's also a testicular physiologist which makes me tuck up just a little bit <laughs> when i hear it <laughs> and uh from the department of anatomy and developmental biology at monash university welcome sarah Thank you. It's great to have you back in the studio. You, you have been on before. And uh, we have Professor Ted Berger, who is a Professor of Biomedical Engineering in the Viterbi School of Engineering in the University of Southern California. Ted, can you hear us? I can hear you just fine, thanks. Excellent. Now, Sarah, I might start with you because it is the Medical Research Week here in Australia, and as part of that, the ASMR gives out a particular award to which Ted is a recipient. Tell us a bit about that award. Well, um, it's it, it's really... A f- the award is really to help us in what one of our guiding principles is in and around Australia, and that's to raise awareness of the benefits of health and medical research in the community. Mm-hmm. And so once a year we scan the globe 
um, and find someone that is a exemplary example of someone that can showcase really I guess pioneering work and what we would call it is renaissance work and mm-hmm. and we've had Ted on our list um, for a few years and um, and he accepted so that's, that's why Ted's here. Now Ted uh, you've just been called the renaissance man are you comfortable <laughs> with that accolade? Oh how can I not be comfortable? <laughs> <laughs> now, you're into neuroprosthetics, and this is an area that it seems to be in the news every other week at the moment because the advancements that are coming forward are just extraordinary. Give us a bit of a rundown of where we're at with some of that stuff because I think there's still this idea that it's um, it's highly invasive, it's problematic, it barely works. I mean, where are we at with these sorts of things? Well, it's really the... the the field of neuroprosthetics has really taken a, a big jump in, in, in uh, capability in the last uh, five to ten years. Uh, and what's, what's essentially happened is that we've begun to understand enough about the brain and how the brain works and, and how the brain controls uh, other, uh, other parts of the nervous system and other parts of the body, like uh, arms and hands, that, um, that we can uh, you know, formulate relations between um, the brain and, and movement and the brain and, and thought processes. And, uh, and so it's possible now to, uh, to structure uh, devices and electronics and uh, things like that so that, uh, for example, it's now possible to, uh, to, uh, to connect the brain to, to muscles and to uh, uh, tendons in the arms and hands so that a person who has uh, lost their arm can now have an artificial arm put on and the brain can be connected to it so that all the person has to do is to think about moving their arm if they see a glass on a table and they want to drink a water all they have to do is think about it in the same way that you and I would think about it today and mm. the artificial arm will move pick up the glass and bring it to their lips and, and when you when you talk about that there's obviously a huge amount of work between a and a and sort of z there in that that um that description how much do you have to measure of a, an individual's brain and how they go about that task before you can make something like that work or, or are you sort of working people working more on generic techniques uh, they're definitely working on um, uh, generic techniques. This is a, the kind of understanding about how the nervous system works that doesn't depend on knowing, uh, you know, specialized functions for each individual. Uh, a neuroprosthesis like the kind I described, uh, of course, it has to be fit to each individual person. But the general principle that drives each one is, is in fact, a general principle. So that it works for everybody and not mm. just for a single person. Now, you in particular are working on the hippocampus. Give us an idea of what the role of that is in the brain normally. Sure. Uh, the hippocampus is the is the part of the brain that's responsible for forming new memories. So it's the it's the it's the part of the brain that uh, that I've used uh, right now in in uh, uh, learning what the sound of your voice is mm-hmm. and and learning your name. And you've just used to learn my name and Viterbi, you know, which which most people can't pronounce. You did really well. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but, uh, and so the the, uh, the hippocampus forms new long-term memories and then sends them to other parts of the brain for storage. So it doesn't store them, but it takes short-term memories and makes them into long-term memories. And then those long-term memories are stored. Now, there's a lot of conditions that prevent that activity from occurring, I assume, um, stroke, epilepsy, etc. Right, 
uh, uh, stroke, uh, certain types of stroke, uh, epilepsy for sure, and and primarily aging, you know, dementia uh, definitely gets in the way of of, of forming uh, new long-term memories. So it's a it's a prominent feature of Alzheimer's. So when you deal with producing a neuroprosthesis for that area of the brain, are, are you trying to bypass the hippocampus? What exactly are you trying to achieve? What we're, what we're trying to achieve is, is first to understand what the mathematical process is by which the, uh, the hippocampus takes a short-term memory code, because there is a particular code that's used, and how the hippocampus uh, transforms that code uh, for short-term memories into a different code for long-term memories. And we've been studying that in animals and now in humans, and we've been developing mathematical models that allow us to predict uh, given a short-term memory, what does the long-term memory have to look like? Hmm. And uh, and if we can do that, uh, then then we can in fact bypass the part of the uh, the part of the hippocampus that's been damaged, and we can substitute our own uh, process, that is the mathematical process, uh, which we've put onto a microchip, and the microchip is then mounted onto the person's uh, skull. And, and how how big is, are you talking about the outside of the skull there, or is it something you implant? No, the, uh, what's implanted uh, are the electrodes that record electrical activity uh, from the short-term memory part of the brain, and then another set of electrodes that's uh, implanted to electrically stimulate uh, the long-term uh, memory part of the brain. Uh, and But the, those, those two sets of electrodes are connected uh, to a microchip which sits on the top of the skull on, on the outside. Mm. Well, one of the things I think has been fascinating over the years is all the discussion of the ultimate sort of capacity memory-wise of the human brain. And, you know, there's been many various calculations of that, most of which I think are probably better, better described as guesses. But you must be seeing the sheer weight of data when you do this sort of work coming in. How much data are, are you looking at when we talk about simple memories? Well, we actually don't. I'll be honest. We don't know enough about that yet. Uh, we're we're at the beginning of this enough that um, that we're still working on on how to um, on on how to develop uh, new codes for single memories. But I think what's what's most important about about the the advances that we're making is that is that we're not um, you know forming a table of all the long-term memory codes for things like a basketball and a car and you know your mother and things like that we're not we're not trying to develop this this uh, gigantic table uh, that we can then reach into and pull out when you need a particular memory and instead what we're doing is is discovering uh, the general rule in other words, what is the general mathematical rule that allows any short-term memory to be made into any long-term memory yeah and and with that general rule then we can apply it to well as I said to any any short-term memory that needs to be made into a long-term memory. So it's exactly what the capacity, uh, what the capacity means, uh, both for our device and for a human, is something that we'll figure out after we test the limits of that general rule 
so far we've been able to discover it, but we don't know what the the, the absolute limits are yet. It's extraordinary stuff. It reminds me of a, I think there was a 1970s film about recording uh, memories and experiences and letting someone else experience them. Mm. Uh, was it called Brainstorm? I'm trying to remember what it was called. I think it had Natalie Wood. Anyway, um, will you be? Do you think you will be able to actually record one individual's memory and have another person experience it down the track? I mean, it sounds like we're getting to that point. Uh, you're, um, I think you're you're very close to being uh, to being correct. Um, uh, we've actually tried uh, both us and another lab has tried taking the memories from one uh, rat and <laughs> by connecting the hippocampus from one rat to another rat, tried to transfer memories from one animal to the other, and it's been successful. Wow. Um, we haven't tried to do much more with it than that, but but we can in fact show that that's possible. So. I don't know what it means for one rat to experience another rat's memory, but uh, but at least uh, we can transfer memories. That seems to be the case. Geez, you've got to get the ethicists to catch up. I think that's extraordinary work, Ted. It's amazing to hear about that. Now, are you enjoying it? You're up in Queensland at the moment. How's the weather? Oh, the weather's fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's really, really terrific. Very, very beautiful. Very beautiful. Um, Sarah, you're going to have Ted uh, zipping around the country. What What's on the schedule for him while he's here? Well, we have a dinner in every capital city and territory um, from started last week in November and it finishes um, in Perth on Friday. But we've also got the National Press Club as well. Mm-hmm. And in, as, as part of Medical Research Week as well, we have other events happening. There's one particular one in um, which Ted won't be at, but we have some fabulous speakers where if you want to come and have dinner with a scientist, um, that's on Tuesday night, 6.30 at the Waterside. But in terms of that... Keep um, keep a listen out for Ted because he'll be doing like a lot of interviews mm. similar to what mm. we're doing now and hearing a little bit more about his his work. Mm. Um, Ted, thanks so much for chatting to us. It's, it's an absolute pleasure talking to you and hearing about this stuff. It is literally the, the bleeding edge of things and um, I'll keep a close eye on this memory transfer stuff because I, as my memory fades, I know I'm going to get someone else's to help me out sooner or later. It's the only way forward. Congratulations on these great breakthroughs and we look forward to seeing you around the country. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Professor Ted Berger is a professor of medical, uh, professor of biomedical engineering at the Viterbi School of Engineering in the University of Southern California and the ASMR medalist for 2016 and will be all over Australia, right, Sarah? Yes, that's fantastic. And Dr. Sarah Meacham is the president of the ASMR and a testicular physiologist in the Department of Anatomy and Developmental Biology at Monash University. Sarah, thanks very much for coming coming in today. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we've got a couple of other guests um, also part of uh, the ASMR Medical Research Week coming on in just a moment. Three, triple, I'm Dr. Shane. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go. In the studio, we have Dr. Terence Chong. He is from the Academic Unit for Psychiatry of Old Age at the University of Melbourne. Terence, welcome to Triple R. Thank you very much, Dr. Shane. It's great to have you in here. Now, you, there's two topics we want to talk to you about. The first one is the treatment of obsessive compulsive disorders or OCDs mm. um, and how that affects us in various age groups and so forth. How common is OCD in the community? It's something, I, I mean, I think all of us have got a little bit of it because mm. I, I know, you know, I often, I lock my car three times. I always do it. I, I just, 
I'm probably saying too much on there, aren't I? Um, <laughs> but you know, we've all got. I yeah. think some, a lot of us have got a little bit in there. But yeah. I mean, it doesn't affect my life style. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I absolutely agree, Dr. Shane. I think it's a. Um, it's like most things that revolve around humans. It's uh, something that we see on a continuum. So mm. I think, just mm-hmm. like um, with blood pressure, some of us are up one end, some of us are up another end, and the rest of us are. Um, somewhere in the middle and the same thing with um, traits like anxiety or obsessive compulsiveness. So I think it's important to realise that um, the trait itself uh, is normal in different degrees and it's Mm. only when it starts to impact on our life that um, it becomes an unhelpful thing. Um, And we think it's around... the. Estimates vary, but we think it's around about 1% of the okay. population. That's well, that's affected. a lot of people. It's a lot, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 1% sounds small when, you know, yeah. you've got $100 and someone asks for a dollar, but, but 1% of 20 million people is a lot of people. I yeah. think about how many friends you've got <clears throat> on Facebook. You know, well, we don't all have as many as you, Dr. Crystal, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but most people have a couple hundred, so... Yeah, you know, yeah that's, that's still, you know, two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a lot. It's a lot. Mm. But out of, out of a country of over 20 million people, yeah. that's hundreds of thousands of people. That's, that's, a, right. that's a lot of people. Mm. And what, do we know the cause? I mean, in one regard, I could imagine this is, in an evolutionary sense, something mm. of an advantage on occasion in mild mm. forms. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> the, there are lots of things that are postulated. And I think out of a lot of the mental health conditions, this is one that's thought to have a bit more of a neurological basis than mm-hmm. um, some of the others. And and um, the, the smart people who work in labs have kind of identified circuits involving um, the what's called the basal ganglia and the frontal lobes, um, which are parts of the brain that seem to be involved in a circuitry that gets stuck and people kind of go round and round in that circle. Um, and then um, there are also, I'm sure, environmental causes um, Mm. facets of our personality and how that interacts with important people in our lives as well. And I think um, from an evolutionary perspective, um, there's certainly quite a um, an input there in that, as you would imagine, um, there are some... There are many situations where a degree of um, obsessionality is helpful. Mm. For example, um, <clears throat> if I had a neurosurgeon operating on my brain, um, I'd like them to be more on that end of the spectrum rather yeah. than the close enough is good enough. Or D- double check the tongs are out. Kind of yeah. yeah, that's right. And the right, the right, the right part of the brain. brain. And yeah. so far, <clears throat> or. or, or um, also, you know, if I was on a plane and you know, I'd like the airline pilot to be more on the obsessional side. But, yeah. but um, when it gets too much, that's, that's that problem yeah. as we spoke about. And, and when we get to that point, how do you treat this? Because it seems something that would be quite difficult to, to treat. Yeah, um, it is, it's quite difficult. So it's usually a... Um, so the OCD usually involves um, intrusive thoughts and impulses mm-hmm. and feelings and then the usual thing is a degree of compulsions that arise from that, whether it's a contamination fear leading to washing or some sort of um, uh, danger or harm fear leading to checking um, mm. that's repeated over and over again. And so the usual first-line treatment is a psychological approach um, and the treatment that has the most evidence is called exposure and response prevention um, and this is a really difficult treatment to do because essentially um, we're asking patients to face their fears um, but in a yep. in a graduated way from um, something that's milder uh, something that's less anxiety provoking without performing the ritual or compulsion mm. so um, <coughs> for example um, if it's a um, 
if it's a contamination fear of blood, for example, it might be touching something that's red and then not washing mm. your hands okay. rather than yep. touching blood um, first up, which would be quite stressful. <coughs> and then out, along with that, there are a lot of medications um, that are, are starting to show some... Um, promise to help as well in, con mm. in conjunction with the psychological work. So more for that uh, at least moderate or severe end is where we'd look at um, adding in medication mm. as well. I mean, I wonder too where we, we have lives at the moment that are very automated. Mm. And so, you know, you get in the car, you put your garage door up if you have one, you back mm. out, you put it down, you drive this, you do the exact same thing you mm. know, 300 times a year. And it becomes very easy to forget where do you put the garage door mm. down as a result of that kind of you know, very ordered way we live our lives. And I, yes. I know in, in my case, that's what affects me, why I check, because, yeah. Yeah. because I don't remember doing it. And, and we know that when we're driving, in particular, you won't remember the last two kilometres exactly, and mm. you think, gee, was yes. I paying attention? Of course you were, because your, your brain is very yeah. good at releasing useless information and remembering every aspect of that bit of travel is worthless mm. but then you suddenly think oh hang on you know mm. i mean it, it must play into people with these conditions in a severe form that ordered lives you would think mm. would help but in fact ordered lives may be part of the problem mm. i think um <coughs> i think uh th th it links very much into the whole mindfulness movement mm. i think or mindfulness type treatments in in mental health which um i think are very important but i i certainly agree that um that that degree of what in mindfulness speak they would call mind, mindlessly going about things yeah. where we're on autopilot um, would would certainly play a role. But also there have been studies to show um, that where um, people check repeatedly, it actually reduces their um, certainty if the checking is over and over and over mm. again. So the more times right. a person is checking check. something, the less certain they become about it. Wow. Was it was it right on the 16th time I checked or the 25th <laughs> time and so forth? Yeah. Um, but I think mindfulness is a really important thing. We're actually looking at a, a treatment called acceptance and commitment therapy, mm. which uses a lot of mindfulness um, and has been used in, in anxiety disorders. And we're um, looking to see whether that will help people with OCD. Um, mm. So we're running a group program of that out at the Epworth, which is one of the clinical places where I work. Yeah, that's great. It does make sense that the more you check something, the more it reinforces the need to check something. Yes. Um, but I, I wanted to know if you, if someone um, presented with, with you know, at the the more extreme end of um, of OCD or something mm. similar, and they were treated, mm. and it was for, for to take a hypothetical, completely successful, so yes. everything went away, the behaviour was totally was totally mitigated. Um, are they likely to relapse? Are they likely to develop mm. new similar behaviours? Is it something that's that's now part of their wiring? Yeah, I think um, the. Uh, there are different groups of people with OCD. So some people do very well. And in, in medicine, we often have that rule of thirds where a third of people might get over completely and not have much of it come back. A third might have a kind of relapsing picture. Mm. And then a third might continue to struggle with it over time. And mm. of course, the thirds is, a, is an approximation. But certainly there are... Um, we do see people where it might shift from one thing to another right. over time or it might come back at times of stress or um, mm. at times of, um, of um, uh, illness in, in other sure. forms as mm. well. Now, Terence, the unit you're working in mm. at the moment in particular is looking at the potential of sort of reducing the risk of dementia mm. through physical activity. Now, it always seems to come back to physical activity is good for us. Mm. 
How is the link made there between that and dementia? Yeah, so I think um, the the idea of uh, physical activity, as you said, Dr Shade, is a really um, long-standing one in terms mm. of it's, it's now kind of postulated to be good for almost everything um, we can think of, which is, um, which, I mean, I think is a, is a good thing. Yep. And um, it, uh, my colleague, who's the director of the unit, Nicola Lautenschlager, was um, one of the first... Uh, I think the, did the first study that looked at physical activity as a randomised controlled trial, um, which is a, I guess, a, a scientific trial against um, a, a uh, placebo, um, around about uh, eight years ago now. This was published, and th- this showed that um, physical activity could actually help people with mild cognitive impairment or memory mm. complaints. So, it had been shown to be helpful um, in kind of observational studies and also for people without cognitive problems but this was kind of probably um a uh, a kind of landmark i guess in mm. in in our field where it was showing that it was as helpful there and exactly how it works is still very hard to know although um various people would postulate around increase in blood flow to the brain um uh the i guess increased activity in the brain the oxygenation and so forth and, and what sort of phys- physical activity are we talking about because i mean there's there's marathons and then mm. there's a walk around the block i mean yeah we, uh, i assume we're somewhere in the middle but but what what is that because yeah. there are some treatments where i know some you know we were talking about the immun- immunotherapy and cancer mm. and you know there's been talks about extreme exercise you know hyper stimulating the immune system. I mean, hmm. where, where does this stuff sit? Yeah, so the... Um, the uh, referring to the trial um, that was done by the unit, um, the trial there used um, physical activity of uh, three sessions a week of 50 minutes, which okay. is in keeping with the Australian guidelines um, for older adults, and um, it was uh, moderate intensity activity. So it usually um, included some kind of strength uh, or resistance work as well as mostly it was um, brisk walking. Brisk walk, yeah. um, So enough to kind of get you a little bit puffed out or a little bit sweaty. Yeah, um, yeah. No, that, so. Well, that, I think Chris KP and I could probably handle that. <laughs> yeah, I can sweat. And uh, <laughs> Dr Crystal already does it because she rides her bike everywhere except for today. Um, <laughs> 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 uh, the water comes out and the bike goes in. Um, and, and in terms of actually... You know, this trial you're talking about at the mm. moment, I mean, we're talking initially there about people who already have some of these problems getting a little better or having better mm. experiences. But in terms of a protective sort of element, mm. is is there a, a possibility there that this will, you know, stave off that for, for longer? I mean, mm. I mean, what are we seeing in that, that area? Yeah, there's certainly... Um, <clears throat> I think this is a really exciting field give, um, in dementia. Um, we, you know, we're facing a really uh, growing prevalence of this condition as our population ages. Um, the predictions are kind of 343,000 people in Australia with um, dementia wow. currently and going up to 900,000 by 2050. So so it's a huge um, burden on, uh, uh, illness burden on our community and also on individuals and their families. Mm. So, th- so this is really important work. And so I think there's a lot more um, coming out in, the, in terms of evidence as to what we can try to do to minimise our risk. Um, and so the, uh, um, the sorts of things that are showing quite strong evidence are things like having high levels of education in younger adulthood. Um, and then in, um, throughout adulthood, it's about physical activity, cognitive activity, social activity. Um, and then along with that, um, as we 
as we go through adulthood, it's also about protecting ourselves from what we call vascular risk factors. Mm. So things that affect our blood vessels like blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, smoking, um, and also depression is another um, aspect of um, of this. So uh, one of the um, exciting things that our unit is um, becoming part of is a um, centre for cognitive health, which um, has recently been announced by the NHMRC in partnership with um, other uh, universities, including um, the ANU. And the focus here is on looking at um, cognitive health as the third arm of health. So we have physical health, we have mental health, and then now cognitive mm. health. Mm. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of, um, I guess, cost, uh, both in terms of quality of life and um, economic costs of, um, of, uh, cognit of cognitive ill health. And so the, the focus, as you've pointed out, is rather than waiting for cognitive problems or dementia to occur, but um, rather than doing the waiting bit, trying to get in mm. and uh, minimise our minimize risk and optimise our health. So lots of potential there. Dr Terence Chong, thanks so much for talking to us today and uh, good luck with that work. We're all going to need it sooner or later. Great. Thanks very much, Dr Chang. Dr Terence Chong is from the Academic Unit for Psychiatry of Old Age at the University of Melbourne. In the studio now we have Associate Professor Kate Hoy, who is the Head of the Cognitive Therapeutics Group at the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre at Monash University. Kate, welcome to the studio. Thank you for having me. Um, now you work in some really interesting areas with regards to cognitive impairment and some sort of novel ways of uh, attacking that. First of all, let's talk about the areas of impairment you're talking about. Give yep. us some ideas of what we're on. Absolutely. So um, the research we're looking at is developing new treatments for cognitive impairment in psychiatric and mm -hmm. neurological conditions. So the um, patients that we're looking at at the moment are schizophrenia, um, Alzheimer's disease, and also traumatic brain injury. Okay. And so th this is a, some of these are ones that are inherent. Uh, you, you end up with them and some yeah. are externally, you know, car accidents, whatever else. Absolutely. And, and what style, of, I mean, there's, there's a range of treatments out there, presumably already. You're yep. working on some novel new ones. What, yep. What's different about the treatments you're having a go at? So what we're doing is um, we refer to this as non-invasive brain stimulation and, and we call it non-invasive because we're not implanting anything into or onto the brain. Um, what we're doing is applying either magnetic or electrical mm -hmm. stimulation um, to the brain via sort of external external sources. Okay. So for the magnetic stimulation, for example, we'll put a figure of eight coil over the area of the brain that we want to stimulate and magnetic pulses will pass through into the brain and increase brain activity. Okay. And when we do that over a number of days and weeks, we can um, produce lasting changes in brain activity. Now, I, I'm a physicist, so I always yep. have these magnetic questions, but you, what's changing in the mm. brain when you apply an external magnetic field? So when we apply the magnetic field, we generate an electrical field um, perpendicular to that. And mm -hmm. so what we're actually doing is causing the neurons to fire right. um, through that electrical field. So if you apply TMS, or as we call it, transcranial magnetic stimulation to the um, motor area of the brain, you can actually get the thumb to twitch. Wow. And so we're yeah. actually, we know that we're causing those brain cells to fire. And is the person aware of this when you're doing it? The person is completely awake and alert and aware. It's um, painless. It can mm. be annoying. It's a tapping on the head and you okay. do feel it. Um, yeah. And the muscles contract a little bit. Because people must think back to one flow of the cuckoo's nest and <laughs> the, the time when this sort of stimulation 
stimulation was used inappropriately. But now we hear more and more about electrical and other stimulations of the brain being used very effectively in controlled ways for good. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So electroconvulsive therapies, mm. there's sort of shock therapy that people um, people refer to. So um, ECT requires an anaesthetic and, and puts mm. people to sleep and, mm-hmm. um, and has a muscle relaxant. So all of the techniques that we're using for the cognitive treatments, um, people are awake and alert and, and yeah. Yeah. So how do you know if it's working? I mean, it, it's it's one of those things where cognitive function can be really hard to measure. I yep. mean, how, how do you know that this is having a, a good outcome for people? Yep. So we do a couple of things. So we uh, measure uh, neurobiological changes. So we look at the brain activity that's associated with um, cognition before we give a treatment course, and then we repeat those um, tests afterwards. But at the same time, we do use those traditional um pen and paper tasks we get people to remember word lists and things like that and um and also computerized um, cognitive tests as well which can be a lot more sensitive um and our research our schizophrenia group we've shown some really good um good results with working memory where patients ability to remember and hold information in mind has increased following this Mm. treatment and that was going to be my next question is there's improvements Mm -hmm. which people won't notice in their lives and there's improvements that affect their lives are you in the latter category with the work you're doing we're trying to sort of we're absolutely trying to translate these into um improvements that people notice in their lives so Mm. Remembering a few extra digits is not necessarily going to change change yeah. the world for people, um, but it's a starting point. Right. But our ultimate aim is to actually make functional improvements, mm-hmm. help people live their lives better. And so we include all of those measures as well. Are we helping you um, with things like going down to the shop and using grocery lists and things like that? Yeah. And these are people at the moment who I assume are on other medications and so forth as a treatment with, with some of them quite nasty side effects. Absolutely. So for example, in schizophrenia, there are a number of medications that um, are able to control some of the symptoms of schizophrenia quite well. Unfortunately, at the moment, there aren't any um, medications that help the cognitive symptoms symptoms of, mm. of schizophrenia they're really difficult to treat mm. which is one of the reasons why we're going down this path and there's a lot of people with these conditions you know all over the world aren't there it's not it's not a rare as rare as people would think no so prevalence of schizophrenia is about one percent worldwide yeah. Mm. yeah that's an extraordinary number and how common is it for people to seek this therapy i mean is it is it is it something that's readily available or is it something that is still seen as experimental i mean where, where are we at in terms of translating that into best practice so um there has only been a handful of studies looking at this type of stimulation around the world so we're currently running we, we did some initial work that showed a really good proof of concept mm. that we were quite happy with and so we're running the first clinical trial of that now um so we are you know a little way away but we're heading towards the translation mm. we hope oh it's great that people in melbourne um you know being a, a melbourne piece of research and now able to access yeah. that through yeah. clinical uh, it's, it's, it's brilliant stuff associate professor kate hoy unfortunately we're out of time because we could talk about this for quite a while but thanks so much for coming in and keep up the great work and hopefully we'll talk about this again at some stage i think it'll be worth having you back in thank you for having me associate professor kate hoy is head of the cognitive therapeutics group at the monash alfred psychiatry research center at monash university we're out of time we're going to have to hand over to the team from edith it's been a, a big show of medical research it is medical research week folks so have a look at the asmr website we'll tweet some stuff from here hug a medical um, researcher if you know one hug a medical researcher uh don't do not do that folks um you may be arrested (laughs) (laughs) do not assault a medical researcher do not do any of that uh chris kp tried it last week and it didn't (laughs) didn't work well for him um speaking of which chris thanks so much for coming in (laughs) dr crystal good to chat to you again always a pleasure
Liv's been doing our Twitter feed. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook. We're going to hand over now to the team from Eat It, who are madly cooking up a storm over there. I can see Matt Stebbin thickening his... Stu- uh, I think it was the thumb. It might have been something else. Uh, they're ready to go. Thanks for listening to Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and we'll chat to you again next week. This has been a podcast uh. from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly uh. independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.